Hi everyone, David here from Foresight. This is episode seven of Talking Transitions, our podcast series with EY. If you've missed any of the previous episodes, please do go back and listen to them first to hear how all of the transitions are inextricably linked. This episode was recorded at the COP28 Summit in Dubai on the morning of day seven with George Atala from EY, Jane Burston, CEO of the Clean Air Fund, and Chris Skidmore, MP for Kingswood in the UK and chair of the UK's Net Zero Review. We focus on how cities are preparing for their key role in the transition to a decarbonized economy. Enjoy the show and please leave your feedback on our website or on social media. Use the hashtag TalkingTransitions, all one word, to join the conversation. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this uh, session uh, on cities and the green and equitable transition uh, here on the EY stand in the green zone. Um, thank you for joining us. This will be also recorded as an episode of the Talking Transitions podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy and EY. In this series, we are delving into the host of transitions that are required in order to develop a sustainable economy. We are tackling three key areas and how they are facing up to their own unique set of challenges. The energy and resources industry, the financial services sector and government. I'm David Weston, Editor-in-Chief at Foresight, and guiding me through the series will be key EY thought leaders from the three different areas. In today's episode, coming to you from the Green Zone in COP28 in Dubai, I'm joined by George Atala, EY Global Government and Public Sector Leader. Hi, George. How are you? Hi, David. Good to be with you. Even before the disruption of the pandemic, there was consensus that many cities in their current forms were flawed, but far less agreement on what a more equitable, sustainable and resilient city should look like. Amid a rolling wave of changes, is there a blueprint emerging for sustainable and equitable cities? Joining us today to discuss the transition required within our cities and the shape that evolution could or should take uh, are Chris Skidmore, MP for Kingswood in Southwest England, who is also chair of the UK's Net Zero Review and chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on the Environment, and Jane Burston, CEO at Philanthropic Foundation, the Clean Air Fund. Please welcome our guests. George, we're in the Opportunity District of the Green Zone here in Dubai. So is the green and equitable transition an opportunity or a threat to cities? So I'd like to believe that it will be an opportunity. And I don't think, you know, there was a sign here at COP that said uh, the time for debate is over and the time of action is now. And I think this is where we are. Um, the transition is going to be very important. We've been working with cities all around the world and now, there's been a lot of change lately, but certainly the size of the challenge is still very hard. And maybe I'll just mention a couple of the challenges. And I'd love to also at some point during this discussion, we'll talk about the opportunities as well. The cities that we work with have a lot to serve and they have a huge role to play. And the citizens' expectations are also very high. Citizens get their services from their cities. They get their education, their transport, their safety, uh, all of the things that af affect their lives, tangibly affect their lives. One of the biggest challenges that we find is the ability of cities to generate the revenues that are commensurate with their citizens' expectations. Now, it doesn't mean that everything just comes down to a budget figure. I think there's a lot of room for innovation and for big ideas. But certainly you're starting at the city level with a far smaller pot of money to play with than you would, for instance, at the central or the federal government level. And so this idea of how does the funding come about to allow this transition to take place is certainly one of the big issues that we're dealing with. So are cities performing when it comes to sustainability? So some cities are, and this is where we see a lot of variability. And certainly, you know, we see some shining examples and we see some cities where a lot more needs to be done. Um, I've always been very interested in looking at, if you, if you look at the 10 largest cities in 1950, and, you know, I mean, I, I actually encourage you to do this. It's, it's a fun exercise. Uh, go on Google and, and look at what were the 10 largest cities in 1950 and then look at them right now. And you will find that actually there's a good quiz for the audience here. Do you know? <laughs> there's only one that's still on the list amongst those 10, and that's Tokyo. And so you've had a dramatic change over the course of half a century, more than half a century, 
where a lot of cities have come in and they have far bigger populations than we've ever had before. So cities like Mumbai, like Lagos, like Mexico City. Um, so the, the, the size of the challenge has grown. So there is a lot of variability. I mean, when I look at a city like Copenhagen, for instance, that, you know, where we do a lot of work and their path towards uh, net zero. And, you know, I mean, this is very encouraging, but it's certainly a much different set of fundamentals than what you would get, for instance, in a city like Lagos. And so is there a blueprint that cities can use in order to transition? So... You know, having started life as an engineer, I'd like to believe that there's a, a blueprint for everything. I think, you know, we'll hear today from Chris and from Jane that there are some um, good lessons and some best practice, but I do not believe there's one blueprint that would apply for every single city on earth. Chris, maybe I could bring you in here. Can you share any specific initiatives or strategies that you've seen either in the UK or, or beyond um, that have accelerated the energy transition in cities? And what lessons can other cities learn from these experiences? So I think to start with, uh, it, it's important, I think, to reflect that no one city, uh, no one locality it will be uh, the same. We can't have this sort of off the peg sort of blueprint that is applicable uh, to all. Every uh, city that exists today also has to deal with its historic footprint. And that is a, you know, an industrial footprint, a residential footprint, you know, and agricultural footprint on the peripheries of cities. And it's important to, I think, to reflect uh, that if we're going to have successful local action, uh, we need to work you know, with the grain of, of uh, local, uh, locally based solutions. So uh, I took forward a net zero review, which was mentioned uh, for the UK government. So I've come back and smart my own homework, having signed net zero into law uh, four years ago to look at how we could do net zero in a more effective, more affordable way. Uh, the terms of reference of how we could do it in a way that's pro-business and pro-growth. And I mean, when it comes to growth, I think it's also important to reflect what, you know, the present is very different from the future. Uh, and when we come to look uh, globally, we know that population growth is going to mean that we're adding a city the size of Paris uh, to the world every single week, uh, and 80% of the world's population is going to live in cities. So yeah, solving the sustainability challenge of cities is, is, is critical. Uh, when I did the Net Zero Review, uh, we came up with 10-year 10, 10 missions. I wanted to try to create the sort of certainty, clarity, consistency, and continuity, the four Cs we identified as having a sort of stable cross-party, cross-government sort of program that could be committed to. And one of this was having a, what I called a local big bang. It's actually, how, you know, while it's important for governments to take action, 50% uh, of all decisions that need to be taken on net zero need to be taken away from central government. So sort of recognizing the power, not just of mayors, of cities, and obviously we've got the C40 initiative uh, here is, is absolutely vital. And the research shows that the more you can devolve down these decision-making powers, the more you can create bespoke solutions you can deliver the transition cheaper. Uh, you can deliver it in a more uh, affordable and efficient way, which is why I had one of these missions. I think the challenge for me was that I saw lots of great examples of cities that are powering ahead. You know, for me, you know, you've got sort of Oxford with a really sort of embedded climate assembly and their proposals in their overall strategy for going net zero. I mean, they want to go net zero by 2030, and they're accelerating this with high speed sort of charging points and, and you know, really sort of you know, are at advanced stage. Then you've got sort of Glasgow, and I, I know Glasgow city leaders are here uh, at COP. And again, they've got sort of core commitments for, for 2030, and they probably will make it. Uh, you've got areas like the city of Bristol near me, where one of the initiatives I'm, I'm really keen to champion is the Bristol City Leap. This is a new form of blended finance, where uh, £7 million of public finance from the mayoral authority. And remember, we've created these mayoral authorities that have a guaranteed sort of financial uh, prospectus for 30 years. That has unlocked 424 uh, million pounds worth of private funding for the Boston company Amoresco to decarbonize the city's district heat network. So you know, it's not just about energy supply, it's about energy demand and looking at actually there's a op market-based opportunity. And that's what the review was about. It's like trying to create new net zero markets that can be established around cities and localities. And have you uh, seen much response from local residents to this? Has there been any backlash to this? Or, or general support, I guess, in the, you know, or alternatively? I think you know, that we are facing a, a, a political challenge in the UK around, you know, making sure that sort of net zero and sustainability can be sustained to make sure that it continues to have 
public support and buy-in. But I would say that actually it's on that sort of edge of the grid of creating new networks where community support, if done well, uh, is actually creating really exciting forms of more diverse energy supply. So you may know that in the UK, we haven't been so great at building onshore wind turbines. Uh, we've only had one built in the past year uh, compared to like 18 in, in Ukraine. Uh, so yeah, I guess this is how far we've fallen behind on this. Mainly that's due to planning regulations and the fact that a single person can oppose a wind turbine at the expense of everyone else. But actually, the wind turbine that has been built has been built by Ambition Community Energy in Lockleys in Bristol. And what they've done is demonstrate that this power, which is a small turbine, it's like 1.5 gigawatts, but it's going, the power is going to benefit 4,000 uh, council houses, you know, one of the poorest neighborhoods in Bristol. They're getting cheaper energy bills. So the way we can frame this about not just being about net zero, the more we can move to net zero bills mm -hmm. uh, as a concept. Yeah, yeah that's how we're going to win this over. Absolutely. Jane, uh, clean air is one of the most visible differences uh, that cities and urban areas can make uh, within the energy transition. We've all seen the photos of smog above cities, and uh, including my own city in London. Is there an appetite among local authorities and other stakeholders to clean that air? Yeah, I think building on the points that Chris made about making the case uh, to the general public for what, what the transition looks like and what the benefits are to them, um, reductions in air pollution that come alongside reductions in greenhouse gases and the health and equity and actually economic productivity benefits that you get when the population is healthier uh, is one of the main uh, arguments that people really understand. I think, uh, you know, I, th I always think about my mom when I'm thinking about making the case and because I've been working on climate change for about 20 years. And I think for quite a long time, she didn't really understand what I do. And now I'm working on air pollution. She's like, all oh, right, I got it. Fumes. You know, everybody understands fumes. Everybody knows somebody with asthma. And um, it really is very compelling, which is why I think mayors are at the forefront of tackling air pollution and greenhouse gases at the same time. I mean, we've seen uh, 50 mayors sign up to a clean air declaration that C40 cities have put together. And they're trying to reach the World Health Organization guideline limits for what clean air looks like in the fastest possible time. Obviously, that looks different for different cities and they're starting from a different baseline. Um, and like George was saying, there's some hugely urbanizing cities that where the pollution is definitely going to go up before it goes down. But for these cities who've signed up to the guidelines, they're starting to think through for the infrastructure investments that they're making as they grow at this speed, what do we need to do to avoid pollution in the future rather than grow, grow the pollution and then spend a lot of time having to close things down. So what sort of initiatives do you see that are an effective way of reducing uh, air pollution within cities? Well, I think you have to start with the data and the monitoring. Um, there's only about 40% of governments worldwide actually do monitoring um, and 10, 10 out of 50 odd countries in Africa have it. So you need some kind of baseline. I mean, obviously it's possible to reduce pollution if you haven't measured it. You can often see it, but it's good to have a baseline to understand where it comes from, what the different sources are, and then uh, where to prioritize. And also because these, uh, you know, whatever the policies are that are being introduced, you need to show what difference they have made to be able to having measured the baseline, show the progress. Um, so I think, first of all, get the data and the monitoring. I think secondly, um, to help bring the general public along with you, make clear the health and economic benefits and make sure as well for equity reasons that the policies themselves don't harm the people who you're trying to support. So we saw in London, for example, um, when pollution was monitored at a very granular level, that um, outside of the most deprived schools, pollution is 28% higher than outside of the wealthiest schools. So um, I guess you might think that cleaning air pollution therefore has equity benefits because the most deprived areas are almost always the most polluted, you know, especially where people live, they can't afford to move, the poorest people can't afford to move away from the industrial facility or the busy road. But some of the policies that are being introduced, for example, clean air zones, you need to be careful to not uh, create costs and lack of affordability for people who can't switch their vehicle. Um, and mayors have some powers there. In London, for example, the mayor has put together a big um, subsidy scheme for vehicle switching. But what we also need to avoid then is 
if we're protecting poorer communities in London by having those subsidy schemes for them to get rid of their old diesel car, where's the car going? What we actually need is a national government scrappage scheme so that we're not then exporting those vehicles to a country that uh, is not buying new ones and we're exporting the pollution alongside it. George, uh, just building on um, Jake's yeah, point, on, on data, that's a really important element for many cities. Yeah, absolutely. And before that, I'd like to also emphasize something that Jane said, which is infrastructure. Right? With infrastructure, once you put it in, it's going to be with you for the next 40, 50 years. And putting it in also entails a large financial outlay, right? In the form of general obligation bonds and whatnot that the city will, will, will incur. What we found very refreshing over the last few years are questions that are coming to us from cities about infrastructure. Should we actually build this infrastructure? So, I mean, if you imagine the future, if you imagine more work from home, if you imagine, you know, automated, autonomous, driverless vehicles, you know, the ownership of a vehicle might be in, in, in come into question. The urban design itself, you know, where you've had this urban design of a city center and then urban transport in and out to the city center, all of that eventually will be questioned. And so you can imagine if you put in all of that expenditure and you're stuck with it for the next 40, 50 years, uh, that, that is usually not a good financial decision. So we are getting questions now about should we spend it on this or should we spend it on that? Now on a, you know, more, not, not as bright uh, aside, we're also getting questions such as, should we even bother protecting the infrastructure? Or is there some infrastructure, particularly in areas that are near flood zones? We're getting the question, should we bother protecting it or should we actually just give it up and, and fight another battle? So there's a huge question on infrastructure around the city of the future. And maybe also a point that, that Chris mentioned. For us, it's also... I mean, we talk a lot about sustainability and climate change, but it's also for us a question on livability, mm -hmm. right? Where sustainability, climate change, uh, emissions reductions, clean air are part of a bigger equity livability question that citizens are asking. And that question on livability, now we're finding to be very challenging because you find, you know, I, I remember something that the governor of Jakarta once said, you know, he was talking about the park build-out program in Jakarta, that they're trying to put in as many parks as possible. And then at the end of his statement, he said, you know, of course, this is not just about infrastructure. And he adds, this is also sociological in the sense that, you know, you're engaging your people by providing this, you know, kind of clean atmosphere for them to communicate with each other. So that part is often forgotten, right? Where we, you know, always think about you know, reduction and whatnot. And we forget the part about, but ultimately the, the bigger purpose is livability, right? Um, on the data, I can agree more with what Jane said, right? So um, the city level, but also at the national level, right? Whenever there are these uh, commitments about what has to be done, the amount of double counting that goes in, the amount of kind of um, inability to monitor exactly what's been achieved. Um, we found that now and post pandemic, even more so, by the way, by, by the way, you, you, you know, we're talking about large cities. Wasn't it amazing, uh, during the pandemic that, uh, in a city like Delhi, you could actually see the blue sky for, for once, you know, which had never, you know, hadn't happened recently. Um, but the ability to actually identify data and, and use the tools that we now have to be able to be more predictive about what needs to be done. And in fact, now a lot of organizations, that's what they do. They collect data for people to be able to analyze. So I can agree more with what Jane said. Do you think, a uh, question for the whole panel, but I'll start with George. Do you think the pandemic kind of motivated people to see, they could see what cities could be like? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, my answer is not that technology will solve everything. It never is, right? Um, but I think what we saw during the pandemic is that if you had access to more technological tools, you know, coming back to this idea of livability, for instance, if you were sitting on a more technologically advanced, take education, right? Um, think about countries in Africa, for instance, where they were unable to do online learning for children during the pandemic. Think about the loss to that generation, right? So technology will not solve it, but as long as you have the ability to use technology, I mean, in a, again, in a fair, equitable, you know, respecting privacy, all the guardrails that we talk about, 
you are certainly able to provide better outcome for your citizens. That, of that, I am sure. I think there's also a challenge from the pandemic is that it also highlighted the, the you know, existing uh, inequalities, those that are dependent on public transport who then were not able uh, to be mobile versus those that still had a car. You know, as a member of parliament, we were still required to go into Westminster, but most of us all had cars. We all drove in individually you know, into the car park to vote. Now, that's not, that's not the case, obviously, for most citizens who were unable and were trapped at home. I think it highlights that there's a, a serious sort of challenge. I mean, you know, we now still have the, the legacy of, of the pandemic in cities like London, where if you get on the train on a Friday, it's empty. Yeah, everyone now works from home on a Friday, uh, regardless of what some of my uh, cabinet secretaries want to be reversing, you know, civil services working from home. Uh, and I think that's, you know, a, a challenge that, you know, again, coming back to that, there's no one size fits all. Uh, the question around active travel, making sure people have those options. If we want to create sustainable net zero cities, we've got to give people alternatives that, you know, will match the ability for them to lead their day to day lives. Yeah. Jane, what is the value of city-level interventions and um, to tackle air pollution? And do you think cities' role? What is cities' role in promoting sustainability, uh, equity, in the transition to a low-carbon future? And how does that compare to maybe a national or a supranational government providing some in support? Uh, so I think the value. I mean, there's an economic value, like we said. Um, for in the UK was um, deciding its ambient air quality standards recently because with Brexit, a lot of environmental legislation was up for grabs. And um, so we worked out what the potential economic benefit to businesses would be if we went from the current level to the WHO suggested guideline limits. So not what the total cost of economic cost of pollution is, because you can't eradicate it entirely, but how much benefit is up for grabs for the private sector. Um, and once that uh, WHO limit has been reached, it was 1.6 billion sterling across the UK every single year. So it's really big numbers. Um, a lot of those interventions happen in cities. Um, some of the things that we've worked with mayors on include things like the low emission zones, uh, promoting a move to public transport or more sustainable vehicles. Um, but also uh, very recently with the mayor of Warsaw, who was brave enough to implement a domestic coal burning ban despite the war in Ukraine and the, and the crunch on the energy security for Poland. It's these kinds of interventions are so um, beneficial for people's health. It's about making sure that the mayors are communicating what those health benefits are, but also what these economic benefits are to businesses and others that otherwise might get in the way of their implementation. Um, so I think you asked what, what the difference is between mayoral and national uh, interventions. I think mayors are finding that um, they want to do more and they don't often have all of the powers that they need. A um, couple of examples in the UK, taxis can be licensed by the city, but once licensed can drive anywhere. So all of the cities have to do something for the taxi fleet to, to be sustainable. Another one are the rules for uh, enforcing a ban on solid fuel burning in some cities. How you do the enforcement is set by the national government and it's highly impractical. You basically have to put a monitor how black the plume is coming out of a chimney and most people are burning things at night. So you're monitoring black against black and it's, it's so nobody does it. So there's no enforcement of that law. So cities can't enforce a law that they have. Now there's something coming in on wet wood burning. So you can stop the supply. But if people find wood from elsewhere, you can't stop that. Um, so I think there is a huge, and I mentioned scrappage schemes earlier, there's a huge value in the devolution of powers to mayors who really are at the forefront trying to reduce pollution, um, but don't necessarily always have the means to do it. We were talking a little bit about funding before, and I think that is the other thing that if we had a mayor on the panel, um, they would really highlight is in a lot of countries the uh, where we're seeing a move to more right-wing governments, it's often cities that are more left-wing, and you end up with a different political party uh, running the national government than running the city government, which is crunching city budgets. Yep. And cities can't often access the multilateral uh, development bank funding, other donor aid, because it has to come through the national government. So we've seen uh, countries where 
city mayors are being complete. Like the, the funding is going to more rural areas because of the route that it comes through. Chris, how how do we improve that, and how do we help local governments one get access to the funds, but also get access to the knowledge uh, and and the the support around the transition? So, I mean, if you ask so any local authority or any mayor, as I, I tried my best to do with the net zero review, they will say consistently, you know, the nature of the funding is too short term. The complexity of the funding uh, is Byzantine. Uh, and secondly, it's the nature of the competitive nature of the funding, pitching local areas against each other, cities against cities. Well, we need to do this anyway. So, you know, why aren't we creating longer term grant based processes that recognize this is the future? You know, cities do need support. Uh, and actually, by creating the long-term investment structures, that actually opens up a certainty to private finance to maybe sort of uh, come in and create that blended model. As I said, the city leap, uh, and I'm, I'm keen to try to promote that now that the joint vehicle has been established for other cities to to adopt this. Um, but but ultimately, this is a wider challenge, you know, for the treasury uh, around a net zero investment strategy. You know, setting out you know what needs to be done by all means. Let's work out, you know, through a process. We have these local area energy plans that have been created now by the Energy Systems Catapult. You know, let's set out, as you said, what the data we need to know to be able to deliver on a number of aspects of the, the transition. And then let's fund it and let's commit long term to that stable funding pathway. Because at the moment, local authorities in particular don't have the capability or the capacity. Uh, often the same person that's running the library and the community services is also the person who's going to ch- put in charge of delivering on sustainability. Uh, and they can't, they haven't got the time to keep on bidding into these funds that often are only open for a matter of weeks uh, to find that they've been unsuccessful and only you know, top slicing a small amount of local authorities have, have got it. And even then they've got to spend it within a year. They haven't got the time to put the infrastructure in place to do that. So often they hand the money back to the treasury. So we're in this vicious cycle mm-hmm. by which actually we're not delivering sort of anything uh, effectively. And I would, I would uh, completely second that and add that mayors are actually, um, by being more proximate to the people taking and by introducing some of these policies, which aren't universally popular, are taking a lot of the political heat. And without funding, the, the temperature is going up. So, uh, I think they're going to start, we're going to start to see cities want to do less potentially because they're not getting the support that they need. And, you know, if mayors start losing votes on the back of taking a large stand of ambition and then not having the financial backing to implement it well or equitably, uh, there might be a backlash. So, so I, I'd love to comment because, I mean, I agree with both of you. We've seen some schemes where the central government will put some funding and cities have to compete for that funding. You know, for instance, the, in the U.S., the Department of Transportation put in the smart cities program and I think 50 cities competed and then eventually one city got it. And then, but the guidelines were so restrictive that they didn't know what to do with the money. And then they had to hire a lot of consultants just for them to interpret what the regulations were. So there is certainly an issue with that, that type of approach. Um, there is also this idea that, well, but the private sector has a lot of money. Why don't we tap into this? And maybe here, just a clarification, because we always think that public money and private money are fungible and they're not, you know, you cannot exchange one for the other. (coughs) Private sector will look for a financial rate of return. So basically they're looking for a cost of money that compensates them for the risk that they're taking plus a premium on that risk, right? So that's what they're looking at. When government does the same analysis, they will look at an economic rate of return, which is they add a number of positive externalities into it, such as, like Jane was mentioning, what Chris was saying, you know, health benefits, you know, better outcomes, livability, you know, better urban transport, more employment, da 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 da. That the private sector in a strict financial analysis would not factor in. So you have quite a few percentage points and rate of return that have to be covered somehow. So this is where it becomes, you know, very interesting. And we've seen some cities experiment with various schemes. One of them is look at the inventory that you have of assets. And, you know, we were part of a program in Australia, for instance, the asset recycling program where, you know, the government looked at certain assets that didn't make sense for them to own anymore. They decommissioned, they created an asset 
recycling fund for that funding to go into. And then that funding was used to finance newer infrastructure. So there are ways to go about it. Um, you know, take about, uh, think about, for instance, right of way for telecoms installing 5G, right? That was a, if well captured, that could have been another great source of funding for many cities. So there are ways to go about it. It's not easy. And certainly thinking that let's just throw it to the private sector and they'll jump on it doesn't work like that unless you put in the right remedies to allow it to happen. Yeah. You mentioned a few different issues about key indicators on measurement of success. How do we measure success of the transition within cities? Is it merely GDP? Is it emissions reductions? The happiness index, which I think is it Norway that uh, carry out a survey every year? What yeah, sort of- I mean, even Dubai, in fact, you know, they've been spending quite a bit of time understanding, uh, you know, what happiness is. It's not one indicator. I, I've never thought that, that you could capture it with just one indicator. And, and the indicators, so I'll give you an example in a city where we've done also quite a bit of work, the city of Baltimore, for those who are familiar with the US, the jobs are on the east side of the city and the workers are on the west side of the city. There is no urban transport to take them from west to east, right? So. For me, that's an indicator. That's an indicator of equity. That's an indicator of economic progress. That's an indicator. I mean, you, you just provide a better urban transport. And in the research that we do, it's funny how many times, for instance, something like urban transport comes up. And by the way, it's not in cities like you might imagine, oh, it's got to be the poorer cities. It's coming up in Sydney, in Vancouver, which are very pricey cities that are saying, we want urban transport. This is you know, of the respondents, 40% of the respondents that we asked in Sydney or in Vancouver, more than 40%, all indicated that urban transport was their biggest concern. So you can imagine, right? I mean, it's not going to be the same in every city, um, but certainly it has to be customized and it will be a portfolio of indicators. Jane, is there a sufficient, we were talking about investment um, just a minute ago, is there a su- sufficient level of in- investable, sustainable projects um, available within cities being brought forward? And are the funds there to support them? To the second question, are the funds there? Mostly no. Um, that we produce a report called State of Global Air Quality Funding um, every year, which does what it says on the tin. And it looks at uh, flows of international development finance. And there's 1% of that that goes to air quality projects and 2% of international public climate finance. <coughs> Um, so there's nowhere near enough. This is, you know, this is a topic where there's, we heard at the beginning of the week, some new statistics out from the global burden of disease that 8 million people a year are dying of air pollution and 5 million of those is fossil fuel caused air pollution. So, you know, 8 million deaths, uh, 1% of, of international uh, development finance. Um, and that is not equitably distributed. Um, only 5% of that is accessed by African countries. Um, And so in answer to your first question, are there enough projects coming forward? What we're seeing is where there are development banks prioritizing air quality, which is Asia, um, there are plenty of projects. So uh, Asia produces that has the most amount of funding for air quality and 86% of all of that development finance is spent in Asia. Um, and so I think that the hypothesis is that there's a bit of a kind of absence of demand because people can't see that there would be funding if they asked. So it might be that uh, climate, more climate finance could be applied to things that both reduce greenhouse gases and reduce health harming pollutants at the same time. Because after all, two thirds of outdoor air pollution is from burning fossil fuels. But people just aren't seeing that the cities and the governments maybe just aren't seeing that if they prioritized air quality and their interventions, that the money would be there. Um, So there's a few things that you could do about that. Uh, I think one thing just on a kind of do no harm basis is when thinking about infrastructure finance, make sure that it doesn't lock in uh, sources of pollution for the long term. So I visited Ghana recently and there's a brand new, absolutely beautiful pothole free road from Tamale um, in the northeast across to the, the national park in the northwest. And uh, in Tamale, previously, it was one of the Africa's fastest growing cities before, the, I think it was the fastest growing city before the pandemic. 95% of the trips are done by two wheeler, and a significant percentage of those are bicycle. 
And now with this amazing road, it's great if you're going from the airport to the national park because you can get in a four-wheel drive and zoom there in like two and a half hours. If you live in the city and you previously cycled, it's not safe because everybody's zooming down the road. So there's, you know, there's no bike lane, there's no pavement. Um, it's a bit of a shame, really. So I think number one thing that you need to do is have some kind of condition on infrastructure finance that future, that the pollution is taken into account and that there might be additions that you could make, uh, like simple additions like a bike lane in cities where people are already cycling, given that in the rest of the world, we're trying to persuade people back onto their bicycles um, to make, to accommodate the way that people want to travel sustainably. And the second thing is, make sure that the criteria for uh, international development finance is not funded in silos. You know, there's, there's climate funds, there's health funds. If you've got a project that does like reasonably well on both, doesn't get funded. And that's, you know, it's just a bit of a shame when uh, international development funding is really being squeezed, that the way that we do it isn't prioritizing win-wins. And then the third thing, which I, I actually have changed my mind about, I never thought that I would advocate, find myself advocating for specific air quality pots of funding, because in my mind, it's creating yet another silo. But with the conversations with a lot of these development, um, multilateral development banks and bilateral donors, it does appear to be that the lack of a visible fund for air quality is part of what potentially is dampening the demand and, and people coming forward with projects. So I do now think that at least making visible pots of funding that could be used for that might bring out some more de latent demand that at the moment is being stifled by lack of visibility of the, the fact that there would be funding available. Are you finding much more uh, in the way of private funds coming into this area? Yeah, there's a, in, in the um, philanthropic world, blended finance is the new uh, best phrase. So yes, um, I think uh, having philanthropic funds reduce the interest rate for countries or cities that want to borrow money uh, to invest in sustainable infrastructure is something that we're seeing a lot more of. And uh, with the private sector, on air quality, it's a lot behind climate change. I mean, Ernst & Young were one of the founding members of the World Economic Forum Alliance for Clean Air. Um, which is a group of multinational businesses committing to measure their air pollution footprint for the first time and do something about it. Um, but this is a relatively new alliance. And I think people are just starting to get their heads around the need to communicate the health benefits of climate change, what it means to productivity and their uh, employees and their customers, and then what they as a business, what, what they could bring uh, to the picture. What about in the in the UK? Is is private finance? Yeah, I mean the, the, the challenge up? has been is it's gone backwards slightly uh, in recent years. Uh, in particular, patient capital is less willing to invest in smaller projects. There's almost a threshold now. It was 20 million. It's now like 40 million. Yeah, that's not really applicable for many locally based initiatives. So there's an opportunity, you know, for the British Business Bank potentially to have this sort of convening power to potentially establish place-based uh, investment vehicles. I'm sort of keen that now we've got a bit of alignment, obviously, with the Metro mayors in Manchester, in uh, West Midlands that are taking forward these trailblazer uh, pathfinder pilots on, particularly like on um, residential decarbonization. And then, but we've also got the industrial hubs up in Teesside and the mayor there, Ben Houchin, who's produced a net zero strategy. You know, there's an alignment mm. where potentially you can have the mayors sort of leading private investment, but bringing that in. And, and I, I'd like personally to see uh, place-based funds. Now, they could be either sectorally based, they could be thematically based, uh, which would then be able to invest either in a region or invest, you know, in air pollution reduction across the UK, but then obviously be allocated to, you know, to cities. I think that's one model that you know, the Treasury really should be sort of focusing on supporting for the future because you know, these organisations sometimes need four to ten million pounds. It's just not there for them uh, at the moment. So I think you know, that for me is, is, is a real priority. We've been talking a lot about sort of public funds and even touching on blended finance, but is there a role for market-based solutions to help cities yeah. decarbonise? So I, I personally am quite encouraged by what's being said, obviously, on, on carbon markets. And I know they're still very nascent and there's not a lot of money that's been invested in them yet, but you know, their time will come. Yeah. The challenge is, is you know, we'll all go away from this COP 
uh, and no doubt we will all be offsetting our sort of flight emissions, going on gold standard and purchasing sort of you know, offsetting credits that will probably end up purchasing more solar panels in, in India. I mean, if you go on these websites, often they're quite international projects. And that's great. But what I want to see to be able to support the transition is the ability for industry, for business, where they can't reduce their emissions, obviously have no alternative, we must caveat that, to say, how can we help support a decarbonization project in our backyard? Why does it have to be you know, 4,000 miles across the boat? And that's the challenge of also selling the, the transition, is that the responsibility for industry, for business in their own backyard to be able to then make that investment in the city they live in. And I think the organizations like Reckitt, for example, uh, have decided to focus all their attention on, on sustainability in Hull. Because that was where you know, this international company uh, was founded there. So they've right. gone back to their roots yeah. and they set up OES Net Zero. They're supporting future Net Zero. They're working on trying to help decarbonize SMEs that obviously that's a separate challenge for cities. You know, we can talk about sort of big organizations. So I think that there's, you know, and, it, and it's challenging because some people might say, oh, is this double counting? Are you, you know, cities potentially offsetting when they should be doing it anyway? But I think we haven't got time. Let's get on with it. And that also will raise public support for why we're doing this. So that would be also a market I would like to see being established. I think when we're talking about markets, it's also important to reflect on the conditions that the government put in place for those markets to work and the amount of certainty around things like net zero targets and the interim targets around specific policies like feed-in tariffs. It, businesses want certainty in order to invest. Um, and government is responsible for the infrastructure that makes these markets work. So a small example from Accra in Ghana, um, they were one of the biggest waste, open waste dumps in the world in Agbogbloshi. And, you know, it kind of burns itself and there's lots of methane coming off. It's incredibly unhealthy for the people who live around. And so the government's priority was to move that away. It was like right in the city center uh, in Accra. And um, about 80% of the workforce in Accra is informal sector. And that included people who would, uh, you know, most people can't afford the monthly subscription to the big waste collection facilities. So they'll just call up the waste guy when they've got some waste that needs collected and give him a few sedis and then he'll take away the waste. When the waste dump got moved, it's much healthier for people. Um, but now the waste dump is kilometers away. And the guys who collect the waste for a few sedis can't cycle there on their tricycles because it's too far and because they're banned from using the highway because they go so slow on the highway that they would get in the way of cars. So now there's no way for people to have their waste collected and there's more waste burning in small piles around the streets where the kids are walking to school and the women are working with their babies on their backs. So the, you know, the, the, in, in fixing one problem and providing the infrastructure, another problem has been created. Uh, and obviously there's a business opportunity for the informal sector, you know, one, one man band waste collectors, as well as for these big, uh, waste pr facility providers. But the government needs to provide the incentives and the infrastructure for that to work. Yeah, I'll, I'll comment. So the Ghana story reminded me, uh, Cairo did the same thing where they tried to automate, mechanize, outsource waste collection. And, you know, in, in Cairo, there was, there were generations of what is known as the Zabalin, you know, the, the, uh, the people who pick up the garbage, uh, all in the informal sector who suddenly found themselves without work. And so that scheme failed horribly, um, uh, because they, everyone was sabotaging, you know, what was, what the government was trying. So, I mean, keeping a bigger perspective, I think is important on the market versus non-market question. Look, I think there is certainly a role for the market and that we have to take very seriously. And I'll mention, you know, some of the guidelines there, but I think without quick progress, we are getting closer to a point where the market will no longer be the solution, right? I mean, as, as things, you know, if we're unable to control the amount of emissions, I think the market solution, you're just run, running out of time. And so, and there are, you know, I mean, there was a recent book called Climate Leviathan, you know, kind of quoting Hobbes saying, yeah, so let's not go there. But I think there is, we have time now, but at some point it will stop being there. On the market question, what Chris mentioned, I think, you know, having carbon markets is absolutely essential. I think having consistent taxation policies to prevent 
leakages from happening. So, you know, you have a dirty industry in your country that gets shut down. It's okay. You'll buy the same product that gets produced usually in a country with fewer environmental restrictions. Basically, you haven't done anything. You've just kind of shifted the pollution to somewhere else. And ultimately, we all, because it's all one system, right? One Earth system. We all all feel it. What I'd love to see, though, to see more government involvement in R&D, because typically you have three ways to control emissions. One, you control the supply. Two, you control the demand. Three, you have to come up with some way to remove them out of the atmosphere. So, for instance, a technology like direct air capture, where you're capturing CO2, which still kind of is underway, hasn't fully materialized yet, still very costly, has shown some promise, but isn't exactly there yet. Compare that technology right, with something like the amount of money that went into artificial intelligence over the last 10 years. The billions and billions and billions of dollars that have gone into, and if you look at any of the AI firms, the stock price, there is a tremendous amount of money. What's the difference between existential technologies like the AC, direct air capture and, and whatnot, and artificial intelligence? One has a market, the other doesn't, right? So the ability to create those markets, I think, is it going to be a huge part of what government does. Thanks, George. Yeah, I was going to come back in actually on your point around urgency as well, because um, a relatively simple thing that can be done in many cities and countries is the removal of fossil fuel subsidies. I I say relatively simple, it needs to be done with care and warning. Um, But there are huge trillions going into fossil fuel subsidies that is uh, creating the imbalance that means that the market isn't working in the way that, that you're mentioning at the speed and scale that's required. So, for example, um, subsidies for diesel fuel in lots of places uh, could could be removed and that money be spent on cleaner alternatives instead. I'd like to open up to the audience. So if you have any questions, please raise your hand. Oh, lots already. Just quickly, while I wait for a microphone, Jane, um, quickly back onto direct air capture. Is that something we could see on tops of buildings within cities or anything like that, do you think? Um, I, I, I mean, I guess the, ch- the challenge is how do you have this twin track approach that invests in innovation? My review called for you know, additional demonstrator projects where you know you need that long-term commitment to fund it, but you know, can't be at the you know, the expense of obviously what we have now to be able to deliver the changes we need in, by 2030. But yeah, having that balanced portfolio, yes. Um, but obviously, you know, AI had a market because it also there was a need and it had a customer. Uh, so identifying you know where those future customers will be equally important for direct air capture at the moment it doesn't have a customer business doesn't have a price point that's recognizably feasible yeah and, and, and chris i have to also say that what's now being done in the uk which is a just a phenomenal project that i'd love to see replicated elsewhere on carbon capture reuse storage and reuse yeah. and where the government in the uk um is trying to create a market for the private sector to do that i think that's a phenomenal innovation, right? Where government is actually playing the role of a convener. Right. Uh, but the players themselves are all private sector players. Okay. Uh, questions? Yeah, just gentlemen down here. Thank you. Hi, so my name is Willy Dalskov, CEO of um, Rebalancer. So we're a UK nature restoration fund. So we're looking to put 250 million pounds into treating nature as infrastructure. The problem we're having that some of you guys have, have mentioned is that on one side, the cities, they don't have the vision or the capacity to have projects that are a minimum of 30 to 50 million pounds, you know, to come in as an investment. So there's a capacity, there's a, a vision um, issue, which we're not, we're having a really hard time tackling. Because as you said, private capital is there and we're happy to act without public funding. But it's about putting those structures in place to be able to launch a project where, again, nature is infrastructure, just as a road or a bridge is, but for in our case, it's a river. You know, it needs to be we wiggle. As you may know, in the UK, 16% of the rivers are, are considered healthy, one-sixth. So, yeah, I just want to get the, the panel thoughts on, on this issue. So, I think the, the, the idea about mapping, uh, yeah, a, the focus on the roadmap is really important here. Uh, so, we called for a, a land use strategy in the UK. We don't actually know like what our land is being used for or what it will be used for in the future with, with adaptation in mind. 
So you get a lot of disinformation, misinformation, like people saying, oh, there's not enough land for eat and, you know, and solar farms shouldn't go on this land. You know, if we actually you know, map this out to start with, you know, not just nationally, but locally, this is where I passionately believe in the, the use of local area energy planning. So with the Welsh government has decided to commit to this. So it's one where is it, there's a national approach that's being led from uh, local authorities. They will map out the future energy use, the future potential use of you know, the role of nature, the role of you know, what's needed for industry. And once you know what you need to have, you can then go to the private sector. You can go to investors and say, actually, we now know what the, the, the map looks like for our district heating network. Uh, and actually, local authorities are quite surprised because they thought they might have to pay for all themselves. And they're now realizing potentially there's somebody who might come in, obviously, with that rate of return that you mentioned and help fund it. So, so there's a learning process in actually planning out the future. And I always say, don't plan this just from the start towards the outcome you need. And obviously, the outcome is essential, but also work backwards. You know, try to look through and map out, you know, what potentially are those options that you might need to take, but also recognize where the failures may come, knowing that, you know, the transition is not going to be a smooth one. The woman. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Shamim. I'm from the United Republic of Tanzania. And uh, my concern is that, uh, you know, we are talking about equitable transition. We are talking about uh, inclusion and all those uh, terms, name them. Um, what do we do in the face where uh, urban planners are really struggling because of the, you know, the high growing population within the cities? Giving an example of my own city, Dar es Salaam, it's the fastest growing cities in Africa right now. So what do we do? As a person who is into urban regreening, sometimes I struggle a lot because they will tell you we do not have the space to do that. And uh, if the planners had planned, uh, you know, had initial plans for that, you can be able to to put you into the space to do urban regreening and all those kind of stuffs. We are talking about sustainability. We are talking about human health. So how do we do for us to be able to to also help these people that really want to uh, to help in in saving the planet? Thank you. Uh, so I I heard a Chinese proverb a few weeks ago, which I absolutely love which is the best time to plant a tree is 50 years ago and the next best time is now. Uh, so I would say they don't have the room not to. Um, and it's because of the livability uh, point that George was bringing up before. I think cities are start for the cities that we're speaking to, they're starting to think a lot more about competitiveness um, of external investment within their country and also within the region. And if they're not being built in a livable way, they're not going to be attractive to investors and to people who uh, need to migrate there for work. So I think um, one thing that we're trying to do with urban planners is bring in different perspectives, uh, the health field, uh, the early childhood development field, and environmentalists uh with uh, you know and people people with businesses like we heard from before to help them think through what the different options are can i just really quickly add from a perspective of, uh, as a legislator you know planners and developers you know, require uh planning legislation you know to be climate compliant yeah you know, it's absolutely essential now that we are, you know, it's not just you know, the infrastructure of the past, we have the legislation of the past, all this you know, regulations and planning legislation is not fit for a net zero world. And unless we can update this to make sure that they are, have full confidence that what they do you know, is taking forwards, you know, that it needs to go right through central governments. That's where, yes, we need to devolve. Yes, we need to empower you know, uh, mayors, local regions to, to act as their own sort of net zero authors. Um, but it does require central governments to free them to do so by creating the legislation, regulatory vehicles. Can, can I also add just one more thing? Um, one of the biggest problems in government right now, which very few people talk about, when you speak with governments and, you know, it's not that they don't recognize the need for a better urban space and, you know, ability to manage sustainability and whatnot. There is a significant workforce not shortage, but you don't have the right skills to do in government what you'd like to do. Because when you think about government, whether city or central, they have a national role, right? But they also have their own operations that they need to, I mean, government also emits, right? And so they, there's the role that they have to play. Whenever we speak with government, they tell us, yes, we understand that we need to do this, but we don't have the talent to help us do this. 
So what Chris and Jane mentioned about having the right regulations and the legislation is place, in place is absolutely essential. But you can also think about, we have those legislations, regulations in place, but we don't have the urban planners who actually know and understand how this needs to be done. I mean, it is a required, it is not an easy skill set. You cannot just read a book and, and, you know, so we need to be able to attract. In general, who pays the least amount to their workforce? It's not the private sector, it's government, right? So now you're looking for a fairly specific, you know, accomplished skill. The same person could get a whole lot more working for the private sector, right? But you want government to be doing the work. So this talent issue, I think, is not looked at sufficiently all around the world, whether it's Dar es Salaam or, or anywhere else. The flip side of the coin here, and this is where, you know, I've been going to Jakarta, for instance, for many years. Haven't been to Ghana lately, but I'd love to see how it's turned out. But Jakarta, over the last, you know, 20 years that I've been to, each time I go, it actually looks a whole lot better. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of inequality, but some things have happened. They have put in some, you know, green spaces and whatnot. Um, that didn't happen because just there was some wise person in government who did this. There's also a level of public engagement that we often forget. You know, I mean, government, hopefully, ultimately, represents the people, right? And so the people have to be engaged in, in, in actually demanding and asking. So we don't see that same level of engagement for all sorts of reasons, political, economic, whatnot, right? But we don't see the same level of engagement between government and their citizens. We don't see it the same way in every single place. So hello, thank you for this very insightful discussion. Uh, I think, George, you said technology is not the one only answer for urban problems. And despite being a tech provider, I'm, I'm from Bentley Systems. We are delivering software, uh, building information modeling and digital twins to owner operators and engineering firms. However, I mean, there are too many untapped opportunities today for cities. You know, thanks to EY and FIDIC, the international organization, of uh, engineering companies, we know that there is a gap of 64 trillion, right, to get to a net zero by 2050 in infrastructure alone. That said, it means 75 are allocated. And technology is not the only answer, but it can accelerate. So we see actually three problems here with cities. Number one is capacity development. And I think that what you said, lots of work for EY, by the way. Second is actually a multi-stakeholder coordination, right, required. And they have a lot of problems to do that. And that's number three. They can only do this with open data. You spoke about it. And um, I think it's also the open platform because we did a lot of mistakes with kind of smart city islands in the past where there was a vendor lock-in and, you know, huge companies were offering platforms and then they were actually the cities and all the ec ecosystem was forced to use exactly their, those services instead of having an open ecosystem innovation. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the point. So technology is not the one answer, but can be a super accelerator. And please start using this trillions of, of, of US dollars that are allocated to this business. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you, so I was in Singapore a few years ago and I was speaking with, there's a, you know, department of works or public works in Singapore. And they were showing me, this is a few years ago. So what I'm telling you now is not as ex exciting as it seemed to me a few years ago. So they showed me this app, you know, that you could download onto your phone. If you see a pothole or you see some garbage that's thrown somewhere, you will take a picture of it. The app sends it automatically to government with the coordinates, right? With the coordinates of where this is happening. And the department will send someone and they will fix it. And this is, you know, kind of gratification on both sides. You as a citizen, you know, your government is listening to you government someone is doing inspection on their behalf so that's actually a cost-saving measure a few weeks later i'm in a different city and i'm speaking with the city officials there and i said look you know i was in singapore and they showed me this thing and i'm jumping in my seat i'm so excited i'm telling them about them and you know nothing on i mean you know just no expression whatsoever i said what you know you don't like the story so no we tried it and we, you know, rolled it out and we had zero intake. So people knew that this thing was around and no one felt like, I mean, whether they mistrusted their own government, whether they didn't believe that, I mean, it could have been. So engagement, I mean, you could have the best technology, but if you don't have on the other side engagement, it's just not going to be enough. Yeah. Thank you, George. 
Um, sadly, that's all we have time for today. Uh, any questions, please grab the panelists afterwards. Um, my thanks go to Chris, Jane, and George, the team at EY, uh, the AV team here, and the lovely audience in Dubai. And for those listening at home, please do share your thoughts on social media. Thank you all again so much for listening to Talking Transitions, and we'll see you again next time. 